consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reeds, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. All right, it's spring break. It is spring break. And the only thing that comes to my mind, did you watch, I already know the answer, I don't know why I'm asking. Did you watch the season of Jersey Shore where they were no. living in Italy? No. <laughs> they, because they actually make them work these jobs, even though they were these reality TV celebrities. So you just get to watch people just like pretend to work. Oh, yes. And that was where the comedy <laughs> came in because they were just like... Snooky would like sneak wine into the bathroom. <laughs> but Polly D had this uh what do you call it? The cheerleaders have megaphone. Mm-hmm. And he whenever he went on break, like lunch break, he would scream into the microphone, I'm on break. I'm on break. <laughs> So I just want you all to know that was a long uh, wind up to just say it's spring break and I'm on break. (laughs) That's so funny because like, (laughs) I'm such a good girl. I would never like I would never have broken any rules. I would have been so scared. Oh, like I same. I like what is the double read version of like drinking wine in the bathroom and like screaming I'm on break into a megaphone. (laughs) I don't know. Like playing on a really old read and we're like oh it's naughty but (laughs) i'm so bad (laughs) no same my boss (laughs) wrote me an email uh like last week and was like i I need to have a meeting uh with you when can you meet tomorrow and i was like oh my gosh i'm in trouble i like stayed up all night thinking of all the things I could or couldn't have done to get in trouble. And then it was just like, yeah, I wanted your opinion on this thing that has nothing to do with you. And it was a three-minute call. And I was like, <laughs> I literally got two hours of sleep last night, but thanks. <laughs> Our version of that is like playing on a super old read or like only having one read. Oh, yes. the When the numbers get lower and lower and you're like, uh i'm living on the edge how do you break the rules that should have been the dish topic of today of course i do none of these things that we've described i always have a case full of phenomenal reads they just fall from the sky when it rains and i always have them and i always play oh yours come from the sky i have a tree in my backyard oh yes of course (laughs) but yes i'm on break you're on break too. Our academic calendars are lined up. What fun plans do you have for spring break? Number one, nap. Yes. Number two, nap. reads. <laughs> Number three, three nap. nap. <laughs> yeah, like once the semester like 
gets going like during the weeks, like, oh my God, especially if it's like concert weeks, because the way we do it here, we have like three band concerts in one week. And so the students are exhausted and I'm because ex- I go to everything that I can go to. I go to everything because I'm so proud of them, you know, but like, oh God, I just, once I get to a break, I'm like, I got to stockpile on these reads. Like I got to make some blanks yeah. to get me through, through this last little push for the rest of the semester. Yeah. What are your plans? Well, um, I have some fun plans. We are going to Tucson uh, to visit Chris's parents. And oh, while there, know that. Yes. And while I'm there, um, Marissa Oligario is going to have me out for a master class at U of A, which I'm excited awesome. about. Um, and hopefully that will have some rest and relaxation. But yeah, same. I'm going to be making a ton of reads because when we get back, I have my faculty recital. Have I told you about what I'm doing with this? It's kind of no. unique. Um, so we have on campus, this place called the Elson S. Floyd Cultural Center, which is a super cool building that is really mission oriented. And so you have to be, um, doing activities that align with the mission to even have access to the space. And it's supposed to be this, um, culturally affirming place for the campus to gather together and be highly interdisciplinary and that type of thing. And so my program is these works by native composers, which I'm finally going to record during finals week after a series of delays. I realized I was like, oh, IDRS 2022 is coming up. The last time I was there was in 2019 when I announced I was about to record these works. And listen, the series of hurdles this record has faced do not need to be discussed. Trust, they are plentiful and exhausting. But I'm finally recording during finals week. And so I'm going to play, it's getting formatted as like, I'll do kind of like an overture. And then I'm collaborating with um, Jules Ankney, who is a Nez Perce storyteller who works in the Department of English, and Tyler Williams, who is a Nez Perce photographer. And we are going to do this like indigenous, interdisciplinary, artistic storytelling with music and photography events like I'll play she'll tell a story and then I'll play for like five seven minutes and she'll tell a story and a lot of her stories are about the places or kind of monuments within uh, the Nez Perce tribe. And so Tyler's going to photograph, say, that mountain that Jules is telling the story of, or that river that Jules is telling the story of. And so it's just going to be this like super cool, like indigenous event. And I'm so excited about it. And I will need reads for it. So I'm going to be making them all spring break. That is the coolest thing I've ever heard. I, I'm really excited. This was the type of thing that when I was preparing to uh, apply for this job and audition for this job. I knew this is the type of stuff I would be able to do, mm-hmm. you know, and that there was such a big native presence. And I-, I just knew this would be a campus that would be culturally affirming in these type of ways. And I'm so excited about it. It's going to be really cool. And just kind of different, a different recital than I've done before. But because there's going to be a story between all these pieces, I don't have to worry about getting chopped out, which is pretty cool. <laughs> so I'm going to play for two minutes and then you're going to talk for 15. And then yes. I'm going to play for three minutes and then you're going to talk for 25. <laughs> Post-pandemic recital phase is a thing. <laughs> it really is. It really is. Oh, my God. Are you going to like put the recording up anywhere? I hate when people ask that question but i'm asking it i think probably no i think we're gonna leave it to be a um in the moment experience one because the floyd center doesn't have live streaming built in so it would be this huge pain oh oh, yeah also to um you know these stories in the form that jules is telling them are hers and so she should be in charge of disseminating them and who gets to hear them and that type of thing. That's kind of a cultural perspective that we share. So Mm -hmm. whoever's in the audience with us that day will be kind of welcomed into that relationship and community with us for that evening. But yeah, keep it relational, keep it in the moment, keep it interactive. So no live stream for this event, folks. You'll just have to fly to Pullman if you want to see it. 
I love that because um, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of energy exchange, like mm-hmm. in a live performance, like I'm bringing all of my nonsense you're bringing all of your nonsense and we're just going to experience this together, like yep. in this prism. <laughs> yes. Well, and we're going to do this cool spatial thing where like the projections of the photos are actually on a first level. And then we're going to be on this like staircase balcony level kind of playing above the picture. So there'll be the spatial element. And yeah, I don't know if it would translate to not being in person, but that's so cool. Yeah, if you are in drivable distance of the Palouse, you better be there. So yeah, lots of read making for you. Lots of read making for me. And how about the rest of your semester? That's kind of my big thing for the rest of the semester is finally nailing down performing and recording this native rep. What does the rest of the semester look like for you? I've got some gigs. Uh, at, this past weekend, I played with the Mobile Symphony, which was a lot of fun. And then uh, I'm going to do... It's almost like every weekend I have a different orchestra gig, like Meridian and Gulf Coast and Mobile. And Well, what do you have next weekend? Um, I don't know. I'm like heading out to some place to see like some random <laughs> person. <laughs> Just kidding. You and I are going to Oklahoma City University to be their guests for Double Read Day. Oh, yeah. We're so excited. So if you're in the Oklahoma City area, we want you to come. We want to meet you. And special thank you to our hosts, Rachel Maxo and Anna Resnick. Yeah, that's going to be a blast. Yeah, it's going to be a really good time. And we're so excited. And as always, I'm like over the moon to see you. Uh, Of course, obviously. Why wouldn't you be? No, I'm just kidding. I'm excited to see you too. Hey, oboists! Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes F. Loray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox Products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish, Jared Hauser, Associate Professor of Oboe at Vanderbilt University. Welcome. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. It's really fun to be here. And hello to all your listeners. It's exciting. Can we start by hearing how you came to play the oboe in the first place? How did you find your way to the instrument? All right. So I came from a family of musicians. Well, that's not true. Um, I came from a family that played music a lot. So they played instruments and music. I feel like I was just breathing music in since I was born. Um, If someone wasn't playing an instrument, um, the radio was on. If the radio wasn't on, a record player was spinning. um, It was a thing. So I always knew that I would play an instrument and I started playing music at a young age. And um, my, I had older siblings who played uh, different instruments, and I tried a lot of different things. And one day when I got frustrated with the marimba or tired of the flute, I went to my mom and I said, Mom, I want to play a different instrument. What should I play? And she said, well, how about the oboe? And I said, what's an oboe? And here we are today. That was pretty much how I came to play the oboe. It was just... <laughs> try this instrument and I really it stuck I it seemed to uh, um, click with me pretty fast so I just stuck with it is the reason that you stuck with the oboe because it seems to be impossible to master <laughs> you know 
the oboe never felt awkward to me. Mm. And uh, maybe that's why I stuck with it. I started playing recorder at a very young age. And this is, of course, everybody plays recorder, right? This is something that everybody does in school. I was that kind of weird nerdy kid that actually took recorder lessons. And I started playing recorder when before I started kindergarten. So I was I was probably uh, four years old or a little younger. And there's something about holding the instrument that's so similar to the oboe. You're using your wind. You're using articulation. And other than the fact that it's so much easier and more free blowing than the oboe, I think by the time I got to the oboe, it didn't seem it, it didn't seem foreign to me to hold the instrument and play the instrument. So I took to it pretty quickly. It's I've enjoyed it ever since. It seems like it might be a little bit easier to find other people to play with you on the oboe than to find other people to play with you on the recorder. Maybe. <laughs> oh, it seems like everybody plays the recorder. Little baby recorder consorts. I had I had a little <laughs> soprano recorder as a kid, and um, it it was it was just my size. And when I got older, I had a bigger recorder to play, and it was you know people do. You have you heard the recorder? Console? Oh yeah, they can be incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And that resistance level. I'll take that over the oboe's <laughs> resistance level. <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> so what was your path to deciding you wanted to be a professional oboist? Oh, well, like I said, I've been kind of immersed in music making most of my life. And I've always, you know, it doesn't really matter what the genre of music is. Um my folks would have opera on the radio or we'd be listening to um, a jazz record. And I still have a lot of my parents' vinyl records. Um, and it's amazing the amount of diversity in the music that they had in the house and I would listen to. And I have always was always drawn to playing in the orchestra. And so um, they would take me to hear the Detroit Symphony. I grew up in Michigan, so I would go to the symphony or I would go hear my siblings play in orchestras around town and different sorts of things. And then I remember, you know, August 1st, 1987, I was like, oh, I just played Shostakovich. This is what I'm going to do for a living. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it really was that date, but it was something, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> and, um, um, and at a pretty young age, I thought, I want to do this. Now, my idea of what I wanted to do for a living with it has changed and evolved. But um, that idea of the oboes and the orchestra was, was a really strong concept for me at that young age. And that was my exposure to it. And I still remember watching Al Genovese play with Boston Symphony on TV, or maybe it was the Boston Pops, actually. Um, but I still remember watching that. I can, I can have a distinct image of the white jacket and how he was holding the instrument. And one of my favorite oboists of all times, you know, Al Genovese. And um, I was just always really drawn to that. And, and maybe also that there weren't a ton of oboists. I played so many different instruments growing up that I, maybe that made it appealing to me too, that there weren't gobs and gobs of them. And Mm -hmm. and I felt special for some reason. I don't know. (laughs) So can you talk us through your training and educational journey and basically the path you took once you decided you wanted to pursue professional oboe playing? Sure. Um, So I was lucky that I grew up in a place where there were quite a few really fine oboists. So some of my early teachers, um, was, one of them was Mark Dubois, uh, who um, unfortunately he had focal dystonia and had to stop playing. Mm. Another one was Robert Sorton, who recently retired from, uh, from the Ohio State University. And he was then playing in the Detroit Symphony as assistant principal. Uh, Don Baker, who was the principal of the symphony, I worked with him and Brian Ventura, who was in the symphony. Uh, so there were all these great oboists there to work with and get instruction from. And then uh, I was really fortunate to get to go to the Interlochen Academy and Dan Stolper was there. And this is a 
a little, well, I'll just tell you the story. So my, my father passed away when I was a teenager. And Dan Stolper had a really big effect on me, a, a profound influence on me. And not just that he was mentoring me with the instruments um, and music, but he really was kind of a father figure for me when uh, not long, maybe a year after my dad passed away is when I met him. So I always think back on those times as it being it's really impactful experience both from a musical standpoint and from this role model standpoint. And uh, that was around when I decided I wanted to be a professional oboist. So that was a really special time for me going to Interlochen. Um, after Interlochen, um, I said to my mom, I said, I want to go to music school. And she said, all right, well, I don't really want you to become a musician. I want you to do other stuff because she was a very practical person. And she said, um, I will send you to college. I'll pay for college as long as it's in the state of Michigan and it's the university of Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, um, I'm exaggerating. Of course. But basically, her point was um, we have to make this affordable. It's not going to be an out of state thing. I want you to be able to uh, study more than just music. And so fortunately, um, I got to go to uh, a great university that I could do just that. And that was the University of Michigan. And um, there I studied a lot of stuff, uh, you know, business courses and I, Shakespeare and, you know, meteorology and who knows what. And, um, and I just, the more I did it, the more I realized music was my path. Um, so I studied with Harry Sargis there and that was great. Um, but by the time I got done, um, I think because I spread myself so thin, um, I was only a capable musician by my own sense of will. Um, and, and just because I was sticking to it. And I really felt when I got done there that I needed to study a lot more and dedicate all my time to it. I was lucky to get a short term job in. Um, Seattle, Washington. Uh, and at that time, Alex Klein was at the University of Washington. Uh -huh. And so I went there as an extension student and studied with him for a year. And I had a, a couple other jobs there. One part of it was playing, another part was working in like a stage manager at an auditorium and whatever I had to do to make a, a buck. Um, and that led me then to Oberlin. And Oberlin was where Jim Caldwell was teaching then. And that was one, that was probably the place I wanted to go study most when I was 17 years old. Um, but it wasn't a, a realistic uh, possibility at that time financially. Um, it, it, so I ended up going there as an artist diploma student. And that basically just turned me around. Jim was another father figure for me, but from a completely different angle. And um, he was just a fabulous mentor. There was something about how he talked about art and the oboe and music and life and bonsai trees and all sorts of things that it all became something very tactile for me and something um, philosophical, and it all clicked for me. And uh, I, I feel like that's where I blossomed most. And after that, I could be a professional. And, and from my perspective, after that, I did continue studying, I went to Rice University, and studied with uh, Bob Atherholt. And that was fabulous. And he's a good friend. And he was a great mentor for me then. So that pretty much brings us to where I am now. So one of the things that we wish we could do is turn back time and talk to some of these legendary teachers who are no longer with us. And for me, James Caldwell is one of them. And it's always wonderful, you know, to hear from a Caldwell student, you know, could you tell us more about his teaching style and more in depth, uh, what you learned from him and what he passed on to you? Yes. Uh, you know, he was just a really inspiring teacher. 
he was so knowledgeable. He was such a fabulous player. Um, he was a great musician. And what's interesting is half the time, more than half, most of the time, he wasn't talking to me about the oboe. He was talking to me about music, about art, something philosophical, uh, you know, Zen, um, all sorts of things. So I think one of the things that was so impactful with him was this overarching sense of self. He was a, he was a true artist, at least from my perspective. Um, um, the lessons that I had with him, I, I realized early on that he might tell me something two times, but after that, he wasn't going to repeat himself. He'd tell me once, he'd tell me a second time, and then he'd figure, I'd figure it out. And maybe later on, he would say, oh, good, you got that. You, you know, you've come around to this idea, but he wouldn't keep pressing things. I think he understood that people came around to ideas through exposure to art. You could only tell them so many things so many times. Um, and I think that that really um, helps uh, young artists mature in their own way. None of us sounded like the next one, but everybody sounded good. Um, so I think that was a really important part of his teaching. Um, everything was about music. We didn't talk about reads. I mean, I asked him about reads. He told me stuff. He told me, been the tip, you know. <laughs> Thanks. Um, but it, that he didn't want to talk about reads. He wanted to talk about music. Um, he would talk about oboes because he was interested in the mechanics of it but only because you could make art with it. You know, he wasn't interested in oboe for oboe's sake. Um, there, I mean, I could talk about Jim all day and he was, so, he had such a colorful way of saying everything, um, that everything that would, it would stick with you, everything. And I, I remember, I can hear his voice now, you know, and his laugh. So it was, it was very impactful for me. And uh, what's amazing to me too, he didn't, when I went to study with him, he didn't play very much. He, he had stopped performing. Um, but when he would demonstrate something and he maybe he hadn't played for a month, you know, and he, I, he'd say, give me your oboe. I give him my oboe and my reed and he'd play something and it'd be flawless and he'd sound like a pro and it would be beautiful. And that was amazing to me. I wanted to be able to do that where I wanted to have the wherewithal to just play wonderfully because of how I played, not because of the equipment. And he could be playing my junkie read and they were junky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he would just sound great. And when he had great equipment, he sounded even better. But I, I was, that left a really big impact on me that I had to make the tone because of my embouchure and my wind, not because of how well I scraped my read. And that that was very impactful for me. That's a beautiful tribute. Yeah. Thank you for great. sharing that. Yeah. So post-education, can we hear about embarking on your professional journey and your path to where, how you got to where you are today? Let's see. So when I got done with my master's um, at Rice, uh, I went and did a competition in England, the Isle of Wight competition. And Dan Stolper happened to be one of the judges and he heard me play and we hadn't talked in a long time. And he said to me, well, you know, do you want to do a doctorate? Come to Michigan state and do a doctorate. And I said, well, I don't know. That's not my kind of thing. Um, I, I don't know why I thought that at the time, but I did. And I had been taking auditions and doing okay with that. Um, it just so happens by coincidence that I got, some jobs in Michigan. And I took him up on that. And so I had the opportunity to study with him a little bit more as sort of bookends to my uh, earlier studies with him as a high school student. And he, it was a little different this time because he wasn't just my teacher or mentor. We, we had a friendship uh, at that time that was, that grew in, uh, in a, a different way. He was still fatherly to me, but 
uh, we would play together, we'd perform together. I was doing a lot of professional things. I was playing in the Michigan Opera Theater and the uh, symphony nearby, and I was teaching at a college in Ann Arbor. And I was always in and out of the school, kind of half in residence because I had things going on. But I also had him there to mentor me a little bit professionally. And that was a really nice way to close off my education. Um, I was only there for a short time before I went off to work. Um, but that was a really neat thing for me because I felt like I had this mentor colleague, not just this teacher. Um, and then uh, I was fortunate to get a one-year job at SUNY Potsdam in New York. And that was a really neat uh, uh, situation because that was my first real teaching opportunity. I had done some teaching, fill in things for people. I taught adjuncts somewhere, but I realized how much I really appreciated having the opportunity to work with people that teaching at a university is not just one thing all the time, that it's actually a performance position as well as a mentoring position, a pedagogical position. And that really stuck with me. Now it was a one-year job. Um, I was just out of school um, and I was pretty focused on having some orchestral uh, background. And so I auditioned for an orchestra in Orlando, Florida, and I got the job. And I took that as my next step. And I have, was very fortunate that I um, was able to go from school directly into a position, into another position where I had a means to support myself and I could experiment with what it is that I was interested in doing. And while I was in Florida, I was playing at, um, in, in the orchestra, first oboe in the Orlando Philharmonic, and I was playing in the Palm Beach Opera for a season, and I um, was teaching at Lynn University, which at one point people may remember it as Herod Conservatory, and now it's uh -huh. Lynn Conservatory. And that was great because I was able to recruit students and have experience teaching, and I was a freelance player and I was doing all sorts of different things. And I realized how much I really appreciated the freedom of being able to do all this different stuff, including chamber music and solo music. Um, and I, at one point I had won an audition with an orchestra and I probably would have earned about the same amount of money with that orchestra as I would with all the jobs I was doing. But I realized that I wouldn't have the same kind of freedom. And I really, I, I think if I had taken the job, I would have regretted making that change. Right. So I stuck it out there. Um, even though there were challenges uh, financially, I got married, we had a child. Um, I, my wife is a bassoonist and, and she had a very active career in Florida. Um, but we realized we needed a little bit more stability if we were going to have a family. Mm -hmm. And that's when Vanderbilt uh, came into the picture. And I was really lucky. This is a great place and a great job. And I was really lucky to get the job. And I've been here ever since. I love the winding path that you took to get where you are. I love I mean, it's like thinking about you driving up and down the state of Florida. <laughs> oh my gosh. Down to Palm Beach. Like how much driving was that? Oh, I, it, it's incredible. So it's funny you should say that because uh, I recently bought a new car and, and the, my old car was one that I bought uh, in when I was in Florida and I put just gobs and gobs and gobs of miles on it. And then um, I came to Nashville and I live very close to the university and I walked to work every day. And I realized by the time I sold that car that I had put on 
more miles in Florida in like two and a half years than I did having it here for 10 years. <laughs> and I'm not even exaggerating. I either. know it. It was just crazy. It's a very long state. Oh gosh. It was crazy. Um, I made the most of it though. You know, yeah. I tried to be as efficient with the traveling and get a lot done when I would go to one place and, and kind of multitask my time and, and stuff. And I had great friends there to stay with overnight. And, uh, you know, they very kindly and patiently would put me up and, uh, you know, you know how it is, you know, oh, yeah. Florida, it's, it's, it's an, it's an experience. Um, oh, yeah. but it was great. I, w- I wouldn't, uh, do it any other way. So you had a very, uh, multifaceted, uh, career work environment when you were freelancing and, you know, teaching and playing with the Orlando Philharmonic. And then you traded that for a job that is more secure, but still offers you artistic freedom to do, to play what it is you want to play and teach who you want to teach and all of that. Um, So my question is, um, what advice would you give to the freelancers out there? Because it is a whole different career from freelancing to college teaching. What advice were you, would you give to people who are out there doing that grind? Right. And, and actually, I think it's a whole different career for everybody these days. Mm-hmm. You know, when I think about what, when any of us think about what our teachers did, they often went and played in an orchestra, had an employer for a long period, or maybe two employers through their career, Mm -hmm. Uh, they practiced a skill that they repeatedly worked on and and utilized, and didn't necessarily have to be very flexible all the time. Not that they weren't flexible, but they didn't have to be. And uh, those careers are just less and less available to people coming into this kind of job. Um, It's not that they don't exist. And it's not that, you know, I hear a lot of things from people, from parents in particular that say, oh, I don't know uh, if my child should go to music school, if they should go into music. Uh, I hear about all these problems and the challenges, maybe is a better way to say it. But I'm not sure that there's anything wrong with the music field. I know that orchestra life looms large for everybody, in particularly oboists. And there has been a lot of challenges for orchestras. But the music field necessarily isn't necessarily fraught with terrible things. Right. Um, when you're dealing with orchestra, of course, there's management issues, there's personnel issues, there's artistic issues, there's financial issues, and all sorts of stuff, which are sincere challenges. But music itself, to be a musician, I can't really think of anything better. You know, like that's, that's what I do. That's my expression. And that's my love. And it's how I like to communicate with people. I you this Maybe a funny thing to say, um, I'm not a shy person, but I am an introvert. You know, I, don't, I love talking to people and interacting, but generally I'm pretty introverted in my daily life. Mm-hmm. But music, I feel just, I, can, can, I hope I can connect with anyone. That's how that I, I try to relate with people. So I think music is just an amazing thing for everybody. Um, now, when you start turning that into your career, there are challenges. And so I think the being able to be flexible is the really important element. And if you want to be an orchestral oboist, that's great. Or any orchestral anything, that's great. But understand that along with that is going to be teaching. Along with that is going to be playing, being able to play in recording sessions, one can't turn their nose up to any genre of music, you know? Um, And I hear that from some of my students sometimes, oh, I don't like this, or I don't like that. And I say, you don't, you don't have that luxury, you know, Uh, particularly if you play in an orchestra, you, you have to play those pops concerts. Everybody complains about. I actually like playing the pops concerts, to be honest, (laughs) but not all of them universally. I'll admit that, but generally speaking, I, I think they're kind of fun. 
<laughs> but if someone puts a piece of music on your stand, you have to play it, right? And you have to find a way to do it and have the flexibility to approach it. Well, I was thinking in a city as musically rich as Nashville. Or Detroit. You said it's from or Detroit. Or Detroit. To say, oh, I don't want to play that. It's like, but that's a paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> it's not only a paycheck, but it's fun. Yeah. So I, in town here, I have played with country groups. I've played with uh, klezmer stuff with a group. Um, I played jazz. Of course, plenty of orchestral music. I play in the opera. Um, every season I play with the opera. Um, that's one of the jobs that I have here. But I play in an early music group on Baroque Oboe. I play new music with a new music group. Um, I play recording sessions. And in fact, I don't know how many of your listeners will know this about me, but I improvise and I play jazz, and I play in other genres. I improvise in Baroque music and new music, too. But a while back, it was this past October, I think, a um, producer in town called me up and wanted me to come do a recording session. He specifically asked me because he needed an oboist, and he needed an oboist who could improvise a solo. So I got a recording session specifically because he could just play the track and ask me to improvise with it. And um, hum I'm going to say this very humbly. I'm not sure that there's anyone else in town that would have been prepared to do that on oboe. That's not true, actually. I, I take that back. Excuse me. There are some really great doublers in town. And um, I have a good friend here who's a jazz sax player, who's a very good oboist. He could totally have done it and better than me. But still, they called me specifically because they knew I could improvise. So that um, diversity of skills, I think, is really important for musicians today. Um, I talk about that with my students a lot. I don't know how well it sinks in, but it's an important part of what we do just globally. Yeah. In looking at these other genres or these other like manifestations of oboe playing in, in jazz oboe and in early oboe, like, do you feel that they inform your normal oboe playing or your concept of style or um, I guess are there benefits in addition to the experience which is worthwhile itself do you find there are other ways that it seeps into your musicianship absolutely so from the perspective of say baroque music and playing baroque oboe this one's an easy answer to this um, there is kind of a subset of historical performance where people are trying to do historical performance on modern instruments, because mm -hmm. it's more accessible, generally speaking, you know, who wants to learn to play a whole nother instrument? Oh my God. It's so hard. Uh, it's, you know, <laughs> the Barocopo is so hard. <laughs> it's, it's so true. You've got to, it's, it's, it's just, it's a completely different animal. You uh -huh. know, it's a completely, at least, you know, I talked to my Baroque violin friends and they get mad at me. Cause I'm like, but you're still playing the violin. <laughs> But they get mad at me because, of course, it's very different playing on strings and with a different bow and all this stuff. It's I totally understand. But the fingerings are not like the recorder. You know, they're not like the oboe, but it's fabulous. I love playing Baroque oboe. The reeds are different, too. That's a struggle. Um, so playing on Baroque music on modern oboe is great. And to play it with a historical context is really fabulous. Um, so that's something where my Baroque oboe playing has really informed my uh, modern playing. And I don't think anyone really wants to buy a recording of me playing Baroque oboe. There's much better Baroque oboists than me out there. Um, but I do like to record Baroque music. So when I record Baroque music, I try to do it from a historically informed perspective um, as much as I can with a modern oboe. Um, with other things like jazz, I, I started playing jazz pretty much because two things. I've always loved jazz, been listening to it since I was a kid, always really admired my jazz friends, my friends who play jazz and been in awe of what they can do. And I also looked at it and said, that's a skill I can't do. Why can't I do that? Why why am I stuck with this? And I can't be part of this music making that really appeals to me. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to set aside the 
compositions that were written in the style of jazz and be able to engage in it sincerely. Um, I'm still working on this every day. Um, and I think I'm getting better, I hope. Uh, but that was a huge realization to me um, because I was thinking much more harmonically in everything that I was playing. I had a much better understanding of how all that worked, um, the harmonic movement in a piece, um, uh, what my melodic line, how it, how it related to what else I was hearing. My listening got a lot better. Um, I've always been good at um, melodic dictation, but I was always terrible in school at harmonic dictation. I was like, I just, I just had to sit there and, and logic it out to pass the class. But it was because I never listened the right way. And I listen a lot better now. So that's been a really wonderful realization. And, and it's impacted my teaching as well in how I talk to my students about their musical choices, about what they're reading in a part, um, justifying my musical choices. You know, if, if I recognize that I'm playing some chord extension, that might be more fun than the tonic of that, of the fundamental of that chord. And that's something I want to bring out so I can explain to my students, my choices, um, which has been pretty powerful, I think. Mm -hmm. And it also, I've started compiling, I always tell my students play a bunch of uh, scales and long tones. We all tell that to our students, right? We're like, you got to <laughs> learn to play the scales. You got to learn to, but why? Um, and so I've started to compile some scalar exercises um, that put all the scale work and arpeggios and chord work into context of harmonic function. And I'm hoping that when I get this stuff done, it also, uh, I talk about things in modal concepts rather than just major minor kind of stuff. And I'm hoping that when I can pull this together, it will be really impactful for my students um, hopefully I'll be able to publish something with it. I have this friend here who has been a great mentor to me, a saxophone player named Jeff Coffin, who's, uh, he teaches here at Vanderbilt, but he's a great jazz and popular music sax player. <clears throat> and he wrote this, something called the saxophone book. There's three volumes of it where he does something along these lines with it. And so that has been an inspiration for me to compile scale work, which normally everyone's like, I don't want to do scales, you know, but actually make it kind of exciting and applicable to the music that we're playing. I love how it's very clear that your curiosity drives you to different, mm -hmm. you know, discoveries and different musical languages and how it all works together to inform your musical voice. And I think we would all do well to take a take a page from that book you know mm -hmm. like not worry so much about the outcome and just follow your curiosity and see where it leads you it's you know i realized at one point uh when i was more when i was playing in orchestra that my practice routine had more to do with preparation for the next thing if you think back to school you practiced because you wanted to learn stuff uh but at some point when you're a professional player and you have a routine of preparing music, your practicing becomes, you know, what's, what's next on the stand because I've got to get to this next. So I don't feel bad when I sit down in the rehearsal. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I wasn't challenging myself to learn new things. And I just, I like to learn things. I like the discovery part and um, improvisation was a big discovery opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, Baroque oboe is a and historical performance is a big discovery opportunity, and um, I think that those discoveries and those challenges keep us engaged with. I don't want to sound all you know uh, pretentious about art and stuff, but I think I think it keeps us engaged with doing something artistic and not just vocational. Um, mm -hmm. and, and 
I think about some of my friends who get a little frustrated with the music business uh, with their careers or trying to get from one place to another. And I see that they are challenged with uh, feeling like you're doing the same thing all the time. Repetitive thing can make something artistic be boring. Without being like creatively, mentally, intellectually engaged. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The engagement Mm -hmm. to it. I think that's really a great way to put it Mm -hmm. is that the engagement discovery is part of engagement. So Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important part. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a point well made like Galit and I are just kind of starting to get to the point in our careers uh, age wise where we're seeing people choose to leave. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them will cite this. um, It's not fun anymore. or I need to get back to being creative or yeah, it's become a lather, rinse, repeat thing. And I don't think it's pessimistic. I think it's a really great what you're talking about is sustainability and not losing that, you know, we're married to our instruments in some ways. It's the same way of sustaining any relationship. You know, you can't, you have to maintain it and you have to cultivate it. And I think it's, it's really good advice and things for people to keep in mind. We have this kind of thirst as we're embarking on the career. And then what happens when you get to the top of the mountain and that, that is a self-defined thing that we're maybe not even so much trained for really. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what you just said at the end of that is a really important part is part of our pedagogy. Um, When I studied, most of the time when I studied, it was about here's what you need to do next. Here's your next step. Mm -hmm. You need to learn to make a read well. You need to learn to make a read better. You need to learn these excerpts. You need to, you know, one thing after the next. And then you'd reach a plateau on something. Okay, what's my next step? Oh, now I have to get a job. I've got a job. Now I need a better job. You know, when, when does that stop? <laughs> At some point, you're not going to be able to take another step forward. Your one stagnates. And as, as an instructor, I want to help my students feel like they can discover new things in music and improve in their playing and reach their goals and find new things that are interesting to them all at the same time. It's kind of why um, I encourage a lot of my students to put all of their efforts into chamber music uh, because I think that they uh, it's very accessible to them to put groups together and find repertoire and be creative about what they do. They don't have to play in woodwind quintet all the time. It can be anything and they can create their own careers with it or at least part of their careers. And I think that imagination of what you can do with something is a, is an important part of it too, where, you're not just following in the footsteps of something else, but you're creating opportunities for yourself. Yeah, I totally I love agree. that so much. Yeah. Um, would you regale us with a favorite memory of a past performance? Well, one comes to mind uh, when I was studying at the University of Michigan. I was playing the Mozart Oboe Quartet with a local string quartet group called the Cassini Ensemble. And we were playing at a place called the Carytown Concert House, which is this great little venue in Ann Arbor. And I was a junior in college. And at the time I was struggling with the idea of what it is that I need to do with my life. Um, Because everyone around me was saying, oh, music, that's not a good business. And everyone around me was in the sciences or becoming a lawyer or something. And um, I went to play with this group and I was really fortunate to have the opportunity. It was a really good uh, string quartet that played regularly um, and widely and toured at the time. And we were playing the second movement and during some resolution of a long note, I heard someone in the front um, row had been kind of holding their breath and then they exhaled just after the release of this um, of this special moment. And I remember thinking to myself that this is really special that we have this connection. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to be a musician. 
<laughs> My uh, mom I, used I, to do that when I played, but it was more out of fear. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know that feeling too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, can we hear another memory of a different sort? Maybe um, something that happened that was like a funny moment or something unexpected happened, maybe something embarrassing. Do you have a humorous anecdote to share? Okay, I have a good one. Um, <laughs> this isn't embarrassing so much. I, mean, I have lots of embarrassing anecdotes. It's <laughs> part of life. But I have a really good one. Um, when I first came to teach at Vanderbilt, uh, we did a, a little woodwind area concert that was kind of set up like, here's our new oboe teacher. And so I was playing the Sansaw Sonata. And um, I played, it must have been in the, the end of the first movement. And I was playing along and it was going great. And I felt really good about myself. And all of a sudden, people in the first row were like moving around and gasping, like, oh, <gasps> what did I do? It wasn't me. As I glanced out there, I saw that there was this huge orange and black wasp, like zooming around, oh, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I can feel everybody, all your listeners going, you know. Like, oh, no. Anyway, people were like, ducking (laughs) and it kept flying around and when you know it it came and it it just landed right on my pant leg right by my pocket oh my gosh yeah right so everyone then i could see them as i was playing like their hand went to their mouth and they went (gasps) fortunately i'm not allergic to like these things or wasps things and stuff. Did it sting you? No, it didn't. It did. Oh, Fortunately, I'm not, but it, I didn't, I didn't freak out. So was it in the third movement? It was, I think, you know, I did start the third movement. It was still on my leg. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I looked down at it and I was like, I gave it a little wave and said, Hey, <laughs> I went on and kept playing fortunately, but yeah, it likes it. The, the, the wasp liked the show. So it, <laughs> It sat there with me for like a whole movement and a half. Um, Good for you for keeping your cool. I would have hyperventilated or at least run around screaming. You know, I've always liked, you know, animals and bugs and stuff. So nature. That's good. I don't know what it was doing inside the auditorium, you know, but uh, I I just, I can still see the people in the front row, like dodging and weaving. Diving to the ground. Totally, totally. And I could hear him gasp and that was not really embarrassing or anything. It was That's just hilarious, kind of, though. One of those <laughs> one of those silly things. Um, so our favorite closing question is what advice would you give to a young person who aspires to have a career like yours? Oh. Well, I guess like we were talking about earlier, I think we have to be prepared to have a career like no one else's. So that flexibility is really important and being prepared all the time is really important. But I guess I could have given up lots of times. There was enough discouragement. Um, You know, my very supportive family said, great, but you shouldn't be a musician. Uh, But I still was. And nobody told me I should be a musician. I just, that's what I wanted to do. Um, So I was really persistent. And I think that's one of the things that people really need to have in this business. And that's to believe in yourself and be persistent and be able to take ups and downs in stride. Um, to understand that your last performance was not the gauge of whether you're great or terrible, Um, you know, that you can roll with things and be flexible. Um, the, The idea of being persistent and flexible and ready for anything is a really important part. Um, And being able to deal with disappointment in a constructive way and being able to deal conversely with 
with success in a constructive way too. Um, something else that no one ever told me was be nice to everybody, yeah. you know, be kind to everybody because you never know when, you know, the person that you played in trio with your very first semester in college is going to be your colleague 30 years later. And people remember. People remember. And in fact, um, here at Vanderbilt, one of my flute colleague here, Molly Barth, we went to Oberlin together. Mm-hmm. Um, there's tons of people that I work with and play with at, um, the flute instructor at the mu- music festival I teach at in the summer, we went to interlocking together in high school, you know, and I'm just glad that we were all friends because <laughs> it would be really <laughs> awkward if we hadn't been. Jared, thank you so, so much for joining us on Double Read Dish. This was a wonderful conversation and we're so grateful to get to share it with our listeners. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun. All right. We hope you enjoyed that interview. That was just awesome and replenishing and refreshing and just a great way to go into spring and summer, I think. And uh, don't forget to follow us on social media, rate and review and subscribe on I podcast and wherever you listen, subscribe and rate five stars only, please. And uh, (laughs) Glee on the next episode. Next episode, we have a wonderful time talking with Faye Shia, principal bassoon of the Minnesota Orchestra. Jackie, let's go in this nerd parade. I got to make reads. I say go make reads. (laughs) You stole my line. (laughs) Wait, I say I say that part. (laughs) Oh my God. Amazing.